Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Dr. Pat Gruber to the show. Dr. Gruber, CEO and board member of Jivo, has spent over 30 years developing and commercializing renewable bio-based technologies to replace petrochemicals. His teams have developed and commercialized several renewable resource-based products, including organic acids, plastics, fibers, advanced alcohols, hydrocarbon fuels, and the like. Gruber led the development and commercialization of PLA at Cargill and co-founded NatureWorks. As CEO of Jivo, Dr. Gruber leads the business to commercialize isobutanol for gasoline blend stock, renewable low-carbon jet fuel, and low-carbon renewable gasoline. Pat, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thanks. It's a pleasure to always have these conversations. Well, Pat, welcome to the show. I'd like to rewind all the way back to 2007. Mm. Tell me about perhaps an elongated moment when you decided to, I guess, start Jivo. Sure. So for me, I was one of these very odd people who, I'll take you back even further in that uh, I have a PhD in chemistry and I did an unusual kind of chemistry as organic chemistry was in this program called biological chemistry. The belief I had was that we could use biological techniques combined with organic chemistry to make stuff and displace fossil-based products. So I'm one of these very rare people who had the pleasure of being able to pursue a career in exactly what my PhD orientation was all about. I, I went to college, I went to grad school and I wanted to replace fossil-based carbon. So and, let me interrupt you. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Uh-huh. Why did you want to do that? <laughs> that goes back even further. So Take me back. Sure. So um, there's, there's a couple main things that I remember. So one of them was, I remember the first Earth Day. So I was, whatever year that was, I was a kid and it was made a huge impression on me that this is going to be important. And we were out cleaning a stream in Minnesota and it had plastics everywhere. And so there was the pollution. And then of course, back in those days in the seventies, you remember there was the energy crisis, long lines for gasoline, we're going to run out energy security and things like that. We're like, gosh, there's gotta be a better way. There was a whole bunch of literature at the time, like popular mechanics, popular science and stuff. And they were talking about the future of biotechnology and enzymes and how they work. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And that makes sense. And I went to uh, college. I found out that I was good at organic chemistry and biochemistry and things like that. I was kind of a natural aptitude for it. And so that made it really easy. And so I was able to get kinds of scholarships and things like that. And I went to graduate school. And in graduate school, I was interested in biotechnology with organic chemistry because I'm kind of a fundamentalist on how things work. It really, like, there's first principles of, of how things have to be in reality, right? And so um, I pursued in my graduate career, 
you know, a, I did a carbohydrate chemistry type stuff and synthetic organic chemistry. But in my program, we learned biotechnology. The thing that I didn't know at the time, this is Minnesota, University of Minnesota. What I didn't know at the time is Minnesota was a leader in this, what now people talk about as synthetic biology uh, and biotechnology. So remember, this is in the early 80s, the seven, you know, like 79. And uh, so, go ahead. As you were going down this path of biotechnology, friends, peers, family, looking at you perhaps and, you know, just curious as to why? Well, they all, well, they, so the thing that made me really get after it in earnest was I had this, believe it or not, a 1970 Dodge Challenger RT with a 440 Magnum in it, <laughs> lapstick transmission. I can hear and, it. Yeah, man, it was a beast. It was a freaking, I love that car. And it got to the point where gasoline went up from whatever it was, 30 cents a gallon to a buck and a quarter. And I could no longer drive my car because I couldn't afford it. And that sort of pissed me off. And so it was a kind of one of those things is like, well, that's not right because it's about supply and demand. And there's, you know, people are talking about, you know, shortage of fuel. So it was all this stuff was kind of in my mind. And it was like, gosh, there's got to be a better way to do this. And we have to use biological materials for carbon and displace fossil carbon. Plus there's the pollution that goes with it. And it's not just the CO2, it's the, all the micro pollutants and particulates. And people knew about that stuff back then even. And, um, and I was into science broadly and I understand, you know, it was my natural, I have an aptitude for it. So I was like naturally drawn to that sort of stuff. So people who knew me knew that that's what I was interested in broadly. And I mm -hmm. had, and I was good at it, you know? So you know, I hate to say that I fell down the easy path, but I kind of did, but I happened to be lucky in that my easy path was something that sometimes people find hard and that it was organic chemistry, biochemistry, how to think about processes and things like that. I got lucky, in other words. And um, what happened then is I was hired by a company called Cargill. They offered me a job about a year before I got my PhD and they were looking for someone who knew, who's interested in uh, technologies and to transform renewable resource-based raw materials into things that displace fossil-based stuff using biotechnology. They were, and then what they're really looking at is how to use carbohydrates as a raw material and displace stuff. So they offered me a job, hired me, and they, Cargill is a fantastic company. Uh, and you know, here, one of the things that impacted me in my career was that Whitney McMillan, who was the chairman at the time, and he's one of the family members of Cargill and owners. And they're, you know, they're, he, he got together with the new employees and there was like maybe, I don't know, 16 of us or something, something like that. And he said, what we want to use this company for at Cargill is to make this world a better place for every single inhabitant on the earth. That's what this is about. That's what we're trying to do. This is about making food more available. It's about increasing prosperity for everybody. It's about fulfilling supply and demand where there's a gap. And, and you know what, that resonates with me and it has resonated with me throughout. It is still what we are about here at Jivo is that that's deep down fundamentally what this is all about. And so what that means is that you have to deliver products that add value to people and you have to share value on a value chain, which is, that's the part that's a little bit different. And, uh, but that impacted me. And of course, I had a, a Cargill. I was turned loose to figure out what to do, how to work on stuff. And they, they trained me. They did, a, they did a wonderful job of training me as a general manager early on in my career. So here I am as a PhD, new, and they're like, well, here, Pat, here's your P&L. I'm like, a P&L? What's a P&L? <laughs> I don't know. What's that? You know, and they got to teach you. And then they teach you. Then I'm a general manager. And they gave me a business to run 
one that was in my scope and capability at the time. He was in analytical chemistry business. That was just for training. And then it was, that was part of my job. And the other parts were figure out what we should work on and what to grow. And one of the things we came up with was this um, plastic that's now pretty famous. And uh, it's NatureWorks PLA is the biodegradable compostable plastic that's made from lactic acid, a polar PLA polylactic acid. And it was like, in what happened is, and this is a profound thing that happened to me along the way, was that I didn't know anything. You got to remember how I'm a fresh PhD. I got all, okay, I got these basics. I get the science. And I was already a believer that biotechnology can be useful and that we could transform bugs. And this is, of course, in 1989, 1990. So this is way before any of that stuff happened. But I was a believer because, hell, I was taught that in graduate school. So, of course, I believe it. So what happened is that Cargill said, well, go learn about this stuff. I don't know. You know, you don't. I said, I don't know what to do. They said, well, we'll introduce you to people uh, who are executives and you go interview people in the chemical industry. So off I go with my PhD, with my PhD and my little notebook. Hi, I'm Pat Gruber from Cargill. My bosses sent me to see you. And so I'm talking to senior executives at chemical companies and like, well, look, I want to make renewable resource based products that compete in the petrochemical industry. And they're going to, you know, what do you what's advice do you have for me? I'd ask questions like that. Well, look, you'll, one, you'll never be successful. But number two is you could never do it because uh, you could never get away doing with all the regulations. You could never get away doing the things that we did and the pollution we caused. You'd never be able to do that. Well, so then what do you mean? Well, you got to have something that avoids regulation. It's got to be so clean in the production process. Okay. I just write that down. That's a requirement if I'm going to be successful. What else? Well, it's got to have the same function. You can't. The, the, the time frame to switch a function of, of a product in a, in a plastic, for instance, it takes decades to get something widely adopted. So there's an ex if you do an exact replacement, then you have a higher chance of success in a shorter period of time. If you're bringing in a new functionality and a new property, then the whole supply chains and everybody has to get, it has to be adopted. So am or, I hearing like a, like a drop-in replacement? Drop-in replacements. They were saying about drop-in replacements. And they were talking about then, or if you have such a strong new attribute that you can bring to bear where someone will draw it into the marketplace, then that can be an advantage because you can differentially price it and all the rest. So, I, I mean, I literally made a list of all these things, of uh, the do's and don'ts that they all taught me, right? And you got to remember, I'm like, this is in my first few years at Cargill. I don't know, squat. I'm <laughs> like... I mean, these, but I'm just asking the question, what would, you, if I want to be successful in this, what do you got to do? All right. The big takeaways, drop-ins or have a special attribute that causes people to be compelled, right? That will cause rapid adoption and got to have a spot and it's got to be big enough sponsoring applications so that you can get to economies of scale. Okay. That's a whole new problem. Well, what kind of, what kind of technologies lend themselves to economies of scale? It's very few actually. So there's certain kinds of fermentations that work. If you're in the biotechnology world, there's only a few that work. And uh, in the petrochemical industry, it's these, you know, catalytic processes that, you know, you see at refining in chemical, big giant chemical plants. And so there's this whole list of stuff. And then one day uh, I was sitting there thinking about this big dilemma of, well, do we do something that's an exact drop in of a plastic? Because people at that time were, were not thinking about fuel so much, but we were talking about the criteria that Cargill gave me was it had to be worth revenue $100 million and an EBITDA of $10 million a year. I had to learn what EBITDA was. So, okay, when you start with an economic boundary and you think about the size and the profitability, and then you start sorting through the potential of what can be done in the chemical and in the fuels industry, it's actually a really short list of stuff that could be done that reaches those kinds of numbers. 
so it's a uh, you can it's just not it's just is a very different point of view than you'll run into with a lot of people who are out in our space of renewables. It's like while there's fuels, they're big, but you got to have exact drop-ins with no mistakes. I mean, it's got to be if it's jet fuels, jet fuel, gasoline. You can, that infrastructure ain't changing for anybody. And then it's if you're doing plastics, it's like the big plastics are like BET, polypropylene, poly, polyethylene, polystyrene at the time, and uh, nylon and some of the others. But after that, they're all small. One plant, one world scale plant could supply the whole world. You know, it's that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're trying to get to economies of scale in the biotechnology world. And so this is like one of these little known secrets of reality that I don't understand investors. They chase these things, but it's like, well, look, you built what one or two plants, you're done. Well, that's not what you want if you're trying to get to EBITDAs that are that high and revenues that are high. So you got to have something that can grow, right? So, so it sounds th- like to me, you're trying to do two things in parallel. One is you're working on the drop-in and two, you're actually trying to create a market. You are. And then you get, then in the question of how do you create a market, what will pull you into the marketplace and give you an advantage? Back then, this is in the uh, early 90s, bio-based products were at a very severe disadvantage compared to oil-based products because of uh, oil was cheap back then. And uh, so we started looking at it and we had this a lot of interest from Cargill customers in biodegradable compostable products as an attribute so we started developing those ideas and people people said they would buy it and they were promising to buy it okay that's interesting so we started thinking about that what would it look like and then one day i was walking through the lab and i knew how to make this product called polylactic acid i can't explain it any other way than that all of a sudden i knew how to do it because i understood that we could do a fermentation to make lactic acid lactic acid is unusual in that it has this uh a right you can have the same you know, number of carbons and hydrogens and oxygens, but they can be right and left-handed versions versions of each other, mirror images, if you will. And by how you connect them together, the right and left-handedness, how many in a row of one hand versus the other, and in the chain length, you could control the properties of something and substitute in directly in a drop-in system for uh, um, petrochemical-based plastics. In other words, it works on the same kind of converting equipment. And... Uh, and I knew all of a sudden one day I knew how to do it and I knew how to put the process together. I knew what it looked like. I knew how to address the key questions. I understood the biotechnology, I understood the, and I don't know how to describe it. Any other one day I had an insight of how to do it and make it work. And, um, it was weird, you know, that's all. So, and then epiphany, it was no joke. It was, I swear to you, I was like walking through the lab and my, uh, the tech I was working with at the time. So he said, I just stopped and I stood there like five minutes in mid stride lost in thought. And that's like, I, you know, I'm done. I was like, I need you to do these experiments to prove something. You know, I came and told them. I'm a believer. Yeah. And it was, uh, it was the weirdest darn thing. And, uh, you know, I don't know how to, it's just a weird thing. I had an insight, you know, it was just all of a sudden I knew how all those, you know, what the thing is, is all those guys who, who in the petrochemical industry, they, they were told me all these things, what can and can't be. They're the ones who taught me and I was able to synthesize it in that moment. And it came together and said, here's how this could work. And uh, the process we developed then uh, was the same process originally conceived, and we solved the problems of it. And it's, this is the thing that's commercialized for making this PLA plastic. And it is now the world's largest renewable resource-based pr- plastic, well over a billion pounds used all around the world. But this very same process that I developed and thought of way back then, which is just bizarre when you stop and think about it. Now, as we commercialized that, we learned a ton of stuff about what to do and what not to do. And um, so, for instance, it's a drop-in. 
So in our naivety, it's a it is a drop in. So it works in conventional converting equipment, meaning a converting equipment is uh, where you have plastic pellets. So that's what the commodity is about. So you make in a, at a plant that makes plastic, they make pellets. And no retooling re required. Yeah, and the, yeah, and then the pellets get shipped to market, and then right, and then then you would be melt them, and it goes through the extruding equipment. But we'd run into little things like, uh, for instance, you needed to, we're going to make a sheet of plastic, right, and it's going to get thermoformed into cups. Say, the problem is then that it works on some people's equipment, not everybody's, and you know why? Not everybody had because our PLA melted at a different temperature than polystyrene. What that means is that if you have a machine that had a dial where you can adjust the temperature, you're good to go. But not everybody does have one of those. And so in a practical sense, what that meant was your channel to market got narrower. Now, we were still able to overcome it. And we did a partnership with Dow Chemical and we created NatureWorks and we went and did it. But it narrowed it. We had ran into here's a marketplace. It was amazing. The idea was that with Dow Chemical, we're going to be able to partner with them and they're going to be have all the customers and they can bring them to bear. But what we'd run into in the marketplace is a customer would say, look, I buy however many thousands of tons of polystyrene from you. I want your PLA and I want it exclusively. If you don't give it to me, you don't get the, you don't get the polystyrene contract. Well, that's a problem and a conflict because now it's about selling their polystyrene and not about selling the PLA. So we could not use their channels to market. That's a pretty fundamental lesson learned right there. That really that, is. Yeah. So it was just a practical matter. They were not, they were trying to sell more polystyrene as a bigger business because that is a big business, huge. We're a little freaking specialty product that's entering the market at a premium. And they're like, well, look, you know, and so we just couldn't get deals done that way. So what happened is we won't, that's why we set up NatureWorks and why it was independent was for those reasons. So, and, uh, so, Armed with your lessons learned from Cargill, yep. NatureWorks, your notepad with your advice, yep. you launch Jivo in 2007. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, kind of what happened was that uh, I got, what happened is that I've been doing a bunch of projects at Cargill for renewable resource-based stuff. There's an, I bet you, you'd have a hard time showing me anything made from renewable resource that I haven't seen before at least once in my life, some process or whatever the product is. Because there's just, like I said, there's not that many ways to go from carbon dioxide into a product. It's like there's it's finite numbers. There's details of which capital got spent where with operating costs, where with which details. So what happened is I got bored and because uh, it's all being commercialized, it's all on track. And I want, and I had an MBA too along the way. Cargill said, hey, look, since you, you know, get some business education. And they sent me to school. So, um, you know, and I was like, gosh, I should, I, I got approached by a job in uh, Colorado, by people in a, a job in Colorado was doing a, a fiber technology company. It was a venture back company and they recruited me as the CEO. And so I went to Outlast Technologies for, and then I, it was a turnaround situation. I thought, okay, I'll just be MBA type. And I knew the businesses because we were doing fibers with PLA too. So I kind of knew the space and we were, we were able to get it turned around, got it organized, got it profitable and made, got on a track to success. And then um, I've been doing some consulting work with Vinod Kosla, who's a v, big VC out of California. Then he, what happened is that he had started Jivo uh, with Francis Arnold and they were working on some technology um, that was it just wasn't going to work. And they figured that out already. But then they wanted to reboot. They had some people who were PhDs. They had some capabilities in the laboratory. And then uh, Richard Branson's group, the Virgin Green Fund, uh, came along and said, well, look, if Pat takes over as CEO, we'll invest money. Because they, they, people knew me because of what I'd done in PLA. And Vinod knew me. 
And so that's a nice little vote of confidence. It is. And so that was enough to say, well, shoot, I could go do that. And we'll take Jeevo, we'll reboot it. And I'm doing hydrocarbons and we're going to do alcohol, start with carbohydrates, make alcohols, alcohols into hydrocarbons. The particular focus that I was interested in was isobutanol. And the reason I was isobutanol is an alcohol that you're probably familiar with. Every, any, if you drink scotch, that is, uh, because it's one of the distinct flavor order characteristics of like an Islay scotch compared to a Highland scotch or to an American bourbon. It's that 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 smell that you get in your nose straight away. And is that peat, kind of, is it the peaty? Yeah, that peaty type flavor that's related to isobutanol. It's a four carbon alcohol. Ethanol has two carbons. Isobutanol has four carbons. And so we had known, I had been aware of isobutanol for a decade previous, but no one really knew how to make it. But what's happened is then biotechnology has advanced enough where it was getting interest. It's, it's the techniques have evolved. When I was at Cargill, we developed, a, uh, we did the first genetically engineered yeast that we took an ethanol yeast, shut off its ability to make ethanol. We had it make lactic acid at low pH and scaled it up and operated it at full scale giant plants. And that was the first time that had ever been done. Well, you know, that, so I'm sitting here in my mind, I'm going, well, shoot, we know we can take these things. We know how to manipulate yeast. We know how this isobutanol lends itself to be a building, a beautiful building block that lead, it's called isobutylene. It's a four carbon building block. It's one of the primary petrochemicals. Man, from that, you can make PET, you can make gasoline. You hook two of these suckers together, give them a little hydrogen. It's, it is pure octane, literally. And so, we started working on this stuff and then we started working on the chemistry to do alcohols converted into olefins. Those are the primary building blocks. And then of course, once they're the primary building blocks, converting them into the olefins into hydrocarbons and plastics, that stuff is known in the industry. That's, that's what the petrochemical industry does. That's what they do with the output of crackers. The output of a cracker is olefins. So we're like, well, gosh, if we can crack this nut along the way here and figure out how to do this, this would be pretty cool. So we spent a long time working on uh, isobutanol because it really is a premium product. It lends itself, it has an advantage in that you can make it into gasoline and jet fuel. And, and the chemistries along the way uh, are the technique of large scale fermentation. It, there's only, like I've said, a few ways that work. If you want giant economical fermentations, they're going to be what's called an anaerobic fermentation, meaning they don't need air. They're going to be in giant tanks. They're going to be super simple, super robust. They're going to have, you know, real specific performance parameters. So we knew what we were shooting for economically. And we designed, get the, we designed our enzymes. We'd start with economics and we back it all the way down to enzyme performance of what has to be in a pathway and then how many, what, how those pathways have to behave inside of a yeast that we model the whole thing way back then. And it, we were right on how to go about it. So that had potential. Now, what happened then is we plugged along. Um, along the way, we'd been in lawsuits with this company called Butamax. Butamax was a joint venture between BP and DuPont. And uh, they were trying to kill us dead. But, you know, we spent a heck of a lot of money defending, defending ourselves, suing them back. And now they're gone. We're still here and I own their intellectual property. And so that's kind of one of those things where I hated to have to go spend money on that over the years because it was a serious ass distraction. But here we are um, and it's working. And then there's an, but the problem we had in the marketplace is that when we're doing drop in hydrocarbon fuels like jet fuel and gasoline, um, it's a very narrow specialty product unless you value carbon. And what happened is that about three years ago, there was all of a sudden people woke up and said, gosh, 
we're going to be held accountable for carbon. And then we saw it initially in gasoline. People were saying, well, we're going to have to do something for real. But then in the jet fuel space, people are like, all right, I'm willing to do a take or pay contract even for jet fuel. Because and take or pay contracts are really, really important if we're going to build something new because you got it helps de-risk the overall project. So rather than building it with all equity, you can add debt to it. And the and debt, just, oh, go ahead. Just in case people listening aren't aware of take or pay, can you define that, please? Sure. What it means is if I make it, you're buying it. You promise. You're putting up your balance sheet or letter of credit. I make it, you're taking it. And you're going to pay me. And if you don't take it, you're still paying me. That's what that means. Got it. And what that's important for is securing debt. And so when you're looking at this, you know, we're going, well, we're doing jet, the people are interested in jet fuel. And then we found out that more and more people, because now the jet fuel industry really has got to have it. And there's value there. And we were able to get initial contracts done with uh, Delta and Trafagura, who's an energy trader, which is amazing unto itself. And then, um, you know, there's a belief that carbon value is going to be here. We started saying, well, look, if it's jet fuel, then, you know, our business system does carbohydrates to alcohols, alcohols into hydrocarbons. But, you know, we actually are indifferent as to whether it's butanol or ethanol. We just care about what gets to market quickest and is easiest to fund and build big giant plants. And we had been aware of, we have our own technology to convert ethanol into ethylene. That's the building, two carbon building block of the olefin. And from that, you hook those things together to get to like 12 carbons long. And that's about what jet fuel is. And so we had been aware of that, but then we also knew that there's a company called Axons that's out there, the French company, uh, and they're owned by like the equivalent of like the French, uh, that group would be like the, like the department of energy or like the national laboratories and stuff like that. But they license technology and they've been doing it for years in the petrochemical space. And they're super well-known, super well-respected, super reliable, but they license technology, but we knew that they had technology. And we're trying to get stuff built and funded. So part of this is about how do you de-risk everything in the investor's eyes? And so having proven processes and where they actually know how to operate them for real, well, that's a huge advantage, right? So we struck a deal with them. And, and the thing that the reason we struck a deal with them is that they didn't know you could decarbonize uh, these alcohols. How do you get to be carbon negative or carbon, net carbon zero? The way you do that is by paying attention to how you grow stuff, the energy that you use to produce the product, how you integrate energy and be thinking about it. Like the actual, how do you build your plant so that you're minimizing the amount of energy that's used and minimizing the carbon score? I believe I watched an interview with one of your employees and he used the term from grower to marketplace. Yep, that's it. And you have to think that way. And so when you when you lay overlay that kind of a thinking as to what it is, where'd you get your carbon from? What does it look like? How is it grown? How do you secure it? And you got to have something that's reliable. And then you think about the production processes and what it takes. How do you get reliable, low carbon, defossilized energy? And then you're doing the chemistry and the biotechnology stuff, the fermentation stuff. You got to put that all together and then deliver it out to the marketplace and it better be a drop in. It's, it took six years to get it ASTM qualified, you know, so that people could buy it. It, we had to make that stuff and try it on every damn engine in the world. <laughs> you know, so it's like, how did this happen? Well, I'll tell you what, we isn't like, what you, what takes you so long? Well, it took, you've got to be able to get it right. You can't be changing it along the way. You know, it's got to right. be, it's like, you got to be the right stuff. Anyway, so 
you're asking about how do you count carbon? So how do you track, you know, the carbon from grow to marketplace? So we learned when we did our PLA project back when I was at Cargill, Cargill that, that uh, the world at large does not understand agriculture. You know, they have a, there's a general belief out there that agriculture pollutes. Think, you know, agriculture is bad. Cows pollute. You know, the dead zone in the Gulf is exclusively the result of agriculture. And there's all kinds of beliefs out there. And, you know, people are losing their, their fields are blowing away in dust bowls and blah, blah, blah. Fact is, that's not true. That's it. There are certain circumstances where they is not done well, but a lot farmers are very smart people and they use technologies advancing. So there's almost this, it's a weird thing that people think agriculture is completely matured. There's no improvements. That's not true. Go to a farm and talk to these people. They're doing precision agriculture where they, they're doing, uh, just putting down the amount of chemical that they need for that problem right there in their field. They don't do broad spraying. That's a waste of chemical. And so that's how the technology's evolved or in the, or in the, and the tillage is one of the big ones of conventional tillage means, you know, you turn up all the soil with the plow, like everyone's used to seeing, but now they do strip tilling where they just plow a little band through the field, you know, uh, maybe, a you know, 18 inches apart or something. Um, and then, or you might do no-till. And the reason they do that strip tilling is you're trying to keep the root systems in place and the chemicals in place that are captured in the crop that grew the previous year. That's how the world is unfolding with modern agricultural technique. In other words, it's actually building up soil carbon. It's minimizing the need and reducing the need for adding nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, the fertilizers. It's helping to make the soil more robust and balanced. That's what's been happening in the U.S. for the last 20 years. But because it's such a big system, I think, you know, people just don't understand it, don't think about it. You know, I know that they just, they don't know that this is being done. The advantage of this is if you're thinking about how do I capture carbon from the atmosphere, CO2, photosynthesis is really, really, really good at this. Everything that grows that's you know, is green anyway, uses photosynthesis. It makes carbon dioxide plus water, makes a carbohydrate. Always. That's what photosynthesis does. We cannot possibly do that as energy efficient as Photosynthesis. In other words, taking CO2 by a chemical route, it would take 10 times more energy than a photosynthetic route. So these people mm -hmm. talk about direct air capture, do the math. It's 10 times more energy. Fundamentally, you can't beat that's fundamental math. Chemical reactions, draw them out, prove it to yourself. It's 10 times more energy to do direct air capture. And so that means that, okay, cool. Direct air capture might work where they can't grow stuff. Good for them. And they might have a huge abundance of renewable energy to make stuff. Good. That'll work there. Good. But if we're going to solve the problems widely, we're going to grow stuff. We're going to grow stuff on fields and farms. We're going to grow stuff in the forest. We're going to take whatever, you know, and so this idea that we're just going to use waste things, mm, that's flawed because what are we going to do? We, like there's this great pile of wood down in Houston. Love that pile of wood. It's got maybe a 10 year supply right there in one pile. And of course it's there from having trees blow down in storms, but you know what? A plant runs for 20 years. What happens in year number 11? Am I going to bet on that I'm going to have continued hurricanes and stuff blows down? Really? Am I going to set up a business system like that? What do you think the risk is? So there's feedstock a risk. Feedstock risk. And this is a very fundamental point. Then there's this other belief that the food versus fuel. Did you know the food versus fuel thing against ethanol was put out by the Grocery Manufacturers Association? That's no joke. That's you know, Pat, I, I've done so many of these conversations. Sometimes I often wonder, you know, who's paying for what from a marketing and lobbying perspective. 
Oh my goodness. I could tell you story after story after story. Cause we get to play both sides of the fence on this stuff, right? Cause we're people in the chemical industry like us and the petrochemical industry like us. And then we're on the agricultural side too. And we're enviral oriented. So we get to play all, we get to be in all sides of these discussions and my head spins. Cause you're hit it exactly right. It's who funds what. And of course, what that means is that as me driving my businesses, and this is stuff I learned long, long, long ago, you know what? We stick to first principles. We solve problems. We, we identify them and solve them. Food versus fuel. You know what we should do then is we should make more food. That's what we should do. And then as we're making the food, make a raw material that we can use to make the fuel. And we should think in a way that makes the ground better and solves the problem of runoff and less fertilizer and less incentivize people to do that. And so the way we think about it is this. I like corn as a raw material. It's field corn. Most people don't know field corn is different than the sweet corn. There's like 1% of corn is eaten. You know that already because you've talked with enough people. But most people don't know that. It's None of the corn that we use is the kind you eat. And corn is really three products. That's the proper way to think of it. It's how the Cargill and ADMs of the world think of it. There's three products. There's carbohydrates, there's protein, and there's oil. That's what's in that corn kernel. You, by fractionating them and separating the protein from from the carbohydrate from the oil, you can maximize the value of that kernel on a processing. Carbohydrates are have no nutritional value at all, just calories. Protein is where the nutrition is. So whenever someone starts talking about, we got to do food, I'm like, good, you care about nutrition? Yeah, I care. What? Because that's about essential amino acids. It's about getting protein in the marketplace and helping people with that. Yeah. Well, good. Me too. So we agree. You care about, it's protein that's most important then. Well, yeah, because it's, that's where all nutrition comes from, that and micronutrients. But it's protein. Got to have protein. Cool. And developing economies got to have even more protein. This is why they want corn and soybeans. So what are the two crops that produce the most protein per acre? Well, that'd be corn and soybeans. The carbohydrates are, are the things that are in sweeteners. High fructose corn sweetener. I don't see that many people raising their hands these days saying, bring on more sweetener. You know, so it's like, give it to me. I want more high fructose corn syrup in my soda pop, you know, or it's like my, my, our chief carbon officer, Paul Bloom always says, yeah, we're going, we're going to take those carbohydrates from the waistline to the airline. That's what we're trying to do. No, I like that. Yeah, me too. And that's, uh, that's the idea of let's think clearly about what these things are. So, you know what we should do? We should maximize the amount of protein we can produce, produce on an acre of land and put it to the food chain. We should take the carbohydrates and use them to make fuel out of it, you know, because it solves yet another problem. And you know what, if we do this right and incentivize it correctly, we help that farmer gain value for improving his agricultural practices, helping him get better equipment or, you know, building up his soil carbon, reducing the amount of fertilizer and chemicals that can be applied. So this is all part of this basic philosophy. And then throughout the production process, okay, I got a carbohydrate, we're going to do a fermentation. Cool. What, think about what's happening here. I got 100% of the carbon that goes into that system comes from CO2 in the atmosphere. The electrons that go with it are also from photosynthesis. It's actually photosynthetic sun energy that's there. It goes into fermentation. I got ethanol. Ethanol's got two carbons and an oxygen, okay? The two carbons are bonded together by electrons. Those electrons came from photosynthesis. We do a, 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 so carbohydrates break down from six carbons down to two carbons in making ethanol. Then what we do is we do a chemical process and we can, we strip off the oxygen and that leaves the carbon and electrons behind. Okay. So two carbons connect together and the electrons connecting them are there, all of which are come from photosynthetic stuff. 
Then we do a chemical process and we connect those things together, still using the same set of electrons that are connected there, but now they're just rearranged. Now I got four carbons and then we do it again. And now we got, you know, two four carbon units make eight. And then we add another one. That's 12. That's jet fuel. And so it were all the jet fuel product that we have, the actual carbon electrons comes from photosynthetic energy. CO2 in the atmosphere plus the photosynthetic energy, sunlight energy, it's actually captured in a bottle. To me, this is an amazing thing. Now, the, then the question is, well, people will say, well, Pat, doesn't it take more energy to make that that gallon of fuel than well, you get back from I was, it? I was going to say that leads nicely to your net zero plant or your NZ1 plant. That's exactly right. So think about it. What has to happen is that if it's jet fuel, yet you started with CO2, it has zero energy by definition. It's fully burned. And I'm going to make it into jet fuel, which has a whole bunch of energy in that gallon. It's all photosynthetic energy that's in that gallon. I had to pack that energy back into that gallon. So hell yeah, I can't get all the energy back out of it. It took more energy than what's in the bottle in order to manufacture it. So this comes back to the net zero concept that we is like, look, our fundamental problem for manufacturing pretty much all things is that we use natural gas for heat and we use uh, non-renewable electricity. It's coal fired in the Midwest. A lot of the grid is still coal fired or and it's switching over to natural gas. But you know what? Those are still fossil based electricity. Come on, people wake up. This is an infrastructure problem we have here for everybody. We can't even transfer electrons. If we didn't make them renewable, they're hard to get them across grids. This is a fundamental big deal issue that just kind of gets glossed over. And so this is about and then how do you sponsor the development of renewable energy? So in our concept is like, look, we got the technologies pinned down, how to make the jet fuel itself. Fermentation plus chemistry, cool, works, drop in, yay. Now, how, we got to wrap it with renewable energy, defossilized energy. So what are we doing? We're working with partners to put up a 100 megawatt wind farm. We built ourselves an RNG plant, RNG from dairy manure. So how, how about this idea? You feed the, the animals protein that's decarbonized. You have the cattle go ahead and make their milk, but make their manure, take the manure, make it into natural gas, see if methane, take it back up to the plant to help drive the plant to do the whole thing over again. That's the concepts we're working with here is like this big circular economy thing in a real sense. And when you do this correctly, you actually get to a net zero footprint. It's not that hard. It's that you're going to get my fossil footprint does not come from the corn. It comes from the energy used in production processes, the electricity. Where'd you get it? How'd you get your, how did you, you know, heat your plant up to boil the water off? Well, if it's methane, that causes fossil-based pollution and you got to account for it. So what we do then is we account for everything from the very beginning with what a farmer does through all of our energy at a plant, all the sources, accounting for everything, and then out to the wing of an airplane and then it burns and it's net zero even after it's burned. After it's burned, it's net zero across the whole of the cycle. That's astounding. And what, what match, so in a tank at our, in our tank, a tank at our plant, it's like minus 100 Carbon score. It's sequestered carbon from the atmosphere sitting in a freaking tank. I find that just astounding. And then that we can do that nowadays. We know how to do it, finally. And we can make it economical. And so when it burns, of course, it releases CO2. And then, you know, it releases the energy that you can use for transportation. So we're at this point where the technologies all work. It's the trickier problems are how do we solve for the energy in this country. Midwest at least has good wind resources and we can do biogas. Yeah, but that's how we think about stuff. It's not just simply where'd you get your 
we care about the corn and how it's grown. We want it to be low-till, no-till, and we want to incentivize and pay farmers for doing a better job. So we've already told them we're going to do that. We've got to connect it all to the marketplace. We know that our customers like the idea of being able to track everything right straight through. We set up, we're setting up a technique that we call Verity Tracking, which is based on blockchain technology, so that you know what? We can tell where everything comes from in detail. What did that farmer do this year? Exactly. We can tell that information. We're already setting it up. And so it's just a very different world than what people think about as to how I think the future unfolds. And the future is going to be track it field by field, technique by technique. It's going to be making sure that everyone is paid fairly along the way for the value that they create in the system. And it is about driving change in a big way and producing food along the way, not compromising. This. Without it, we don't need to expand land use either. This is like another one of the common misconceptions that is out there. People are going to plow down all the prairie. No, we aren't. That's a waste of energy, waste of time. We don't need to. Just how about so, this? How about we improve productivity on the land we have? So where are you right now in the process of building your plant? We broke ground. We're doing the groundwork, getting it ready, uh, the infrastructure stuff so that we can hit the ground running as soon as it thaws up in Lake Preston, South Dakota. And Lake Preston is going to be our first plant. It's going to be 55 million gallons of jet fuel, make about um, 7 million gallons of diesel fuel and gasoline. And then it'll take in a bunch of corn, 37 million bushels, make 420 million pounds of protein, 30 million pounds of corn oil. And um, it'll be powered with wind and biogas. And, and we're also building up hydrogen up there too. We need a little bit of hydrogen, so we're going to make excess hydrogen because we're going to have excess wind. We might as well make excess hydrogen and put that to the marketplace and for use some for ourselves. That's the project up at Lake Preston. It'll be about $850 million of a hard cost. We have to finance it. Um, you know, we'll put that on it eventually. But it's a uh, it makes good economics. We have it's backed by take or pay contracts. And uh, the... It is negative. It pencils out to be using the argon green model, a negative carbon footprint throughout its whole life cycle, which is pretty, pretty cool. So that's what, that's our first plan. The way that we'll grow from there is we have a net zero two site that we talk about. We haven't announced where it is, but it'd be bigger, three times bigger than what we're building in net zero one. And then we also have several other sites where they're done in partnerships with existing ethanol plants. The trick with an existing ethanol plant is you got to get them to decarbonize. That means you got to get them to understand what CI score is. Mm -hmm. And then it's an energy problem. How do we get them green energy or defossilized energy? How do we do that? And then the ATJ side is uh, making the alcohol into jet ATJ plant. That's going to be a cookie cutter off net zero one, literally a cookie cutter. We It's 100 million gallons go in, of ethanol go in. You get the jet fuel comes out. It'll be an exact copy of what we've done up there. So, you know, we see we can grow pretty darn fast. Our game is about the technology of indie risk. It's all about how do you bring the financing to bear to build all these plants out quickly. That's what it comes down to. And to do that, we're busy, you know, working on raising money at what we call a platform level. So it's a private company beneath Jivo because we don't want to take the dilution up at Jivo. So you're a private company beneath Jivo and you have all kinds of partners who are interested. So we're busy putting them together. Who's got what money where? How do they want to play? Let's go grow. That's kind of the game afoot. Now we've dug into the business side and we'll switch gears to the personal side. There's a phrase you used at least twice during this conversation. And you said, there's got to be a better way. Tell me about that type of thinking. Yeah. So and this is, I swear, it's probably because I grew up in Minnesota and we're socialists over there when I was a kid. And it's like, they're in this kind of all in it together kind of a thing. And you can't be 100% greedy. 
In other words, what we do with our customers is that we price our stuff and we price it at a premium, but we also give some of the money back for the green value to the customers. We help them share in the value chain. We also are making sure that the farmer gets some of those economics. In other words, we're not putting it all in our pocket. There's more. And I have had some of those traditional kind of companies say to me, what is wrong with you? You guys should be putting all that money in your pocket that you're going to you're going to you should maximize the actual profit. Yeah, but I'm actually trying to get everyone to grow and cooperate across a bigger system than us because I can I can make buku money by stuffing it all in my pocket once or twice or something. And I've been especially product space, but no, if I'm trying to make something competitive in the long run with petrochemicals, we should be sharing the values all along because we're trying to change the world. And so it's in that sense that we are out trying to solve problems. We're out trying to enhance farming, make it easier for people to use low-till, no-till advanced techniques and show them why there's value. We want to see that improve further. We see that there's potential taking it to other countries and doing the same thing. My gosh, you know, the other countries are only 80% of the agricultural productivity. The good ones are only about 80% of the agricultural productivity in the United States. How about this? How about we teach people how to grow stuff better and do modern equipment and figure out how to do that? You know, so in, in that, the same comments are about wood. We could use wood as raw material. We're the first to make jet fuel from wood and fly, fly on Alaska Airlines. And we could do that too. But you know what? You got to do it right. How are you going to harvest the stuff really? Grow it and pay attention to it and count it and track it and make sure it's done without, you know, going crazy. And of course, every, I think that, you know, we all understand being business people that, gee, if I clear cut the side of a mountain and made it into jet fuel, that'd be pretty stupid and be a bad brand move, right? So now we have... 20 years ago, that might not have been an issue. Today, with everyone tuned into ESG, that would be an issue. So we have, it's a very different game to play today. you got to count for everything. Where did it come from? People will say, well, let's use waste raw materials. Cool. Where do they come from? How do they get to be waste? You know, so this game, the, the reality is play that out. We're going to be tracking stuff front to back and making sure people are paid fairly along the way. Otherwise, it, the system can't continue. It's this very pragmatic thing. So what we're trying to do is solve these problems of how do you bring everyone together across the business systems? And it's just a, a different mentality of going about this business. And it's driven by, in a practical sense, this accountability for carbon. If I'm going to track it sincerely and realistically and fairly and factually, I'm going to, I got to know how the hell something was grown. Where'd you get the carbon? It can't be this game of, we're, I have these, we've seen these ones where they're gonna, we're going to burn plastics, petrochemical-based plastics, making the jet fuel, and that somehow lowers the carbon score. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. It's still fossil-based carbon made into jet fuel, except for adding energy to it. It's probably worse in the long run. And so it's only, you know, there's games to be. No, it's about where'd you get your carbon? How'd you pay attention to it? Did you, you can't compromise food. That's a fundamental principle. Can't compromise food. We're going to grow more. We're going to make it better. We're going to make it lower carbon protein. We're going to make it, Low carbon protein to feed, make cows low protein, low carbon. You know, there's all kinds of, when you start thinking this way, there's all kinds of enhancements you can make to this whole system. It's about sponsoring and developing defossilized energy infrastructure. How do I, that benefits everybody. We'll make extra energy too, because health people are going to need it. So it's this whole big business system thing that we're working with and helping people develop it. Who, here's an example of something practical. Do you think, rural South Dakota would ever build a hundred megawatt wind farm if there wasn't someone like us appearing? No, probably not. No, it would never occur for it'd be decades. 
And yet here's a way to take those electrons, use them productively, and we have energy captures liquid that we can ship anywhere in the world. Problem, <laughs> we joke about it. I mean, we have people wanting us to take the care, it's kerosene, you know, that we make, jet fuel's kerosene. Gosh, you make kerosene, you should ship it up to the north and up into the Arctic because those guys need kerosene. And then you can have it be net zero footprint across. Well, good idea. We can turn it back to electricity if we wanted. You know, so it's a way of transporting energy in addition to just being jet fuel. And, and we can also do gasoline. We can also make pretty much, we have the ability to make the raw materials to make any plastic there is. That's also possible. We just, that's not going to drive the initial development in the marketplace. We'll get to that later. You've got to have something big and that's the jet fuel. That'll be so, gas. So from Cargill to Jivo, lots of experiences in between, even taking Jivo public 15 years now with Jivo. What are some of the most valuable lessons you've learned specifically about yourself on your journey? There's this, uh, I work for something bigger than me. You know, when I look at, you know, I'm willing to suffer through, I'm stubborn. People will describe me and you'll find this out immediately from talking to anybody. I'm pretty focused on what we're trying to achieve. We're trying to solve big problems, not play little ones. We're not doing a get rich quick thing here either. We're trying to solve problems. We're trying to, we're grunt work. We're, we're, um, we're blue collar uh, pluggers. We aren't slick. We solve stuff. We build stuff. We're going to make it work correctly. We're thinking about how to make things be successful at our scale. And uh, what I found is that we're, we're, we, we, and what we're driven by this thing that's bigger than ourselves, bigger than me. We can't, I can see just as I did that day when I knew how to make PLA years ago, I can see how this whole system works and creates value for people, makes farmers get a better income, creates jobs, creates infrastructure, creates leverages opportunities outside. I can see how we can create wins across the board and minimizing the downsides. I can see how to do it. And so then you feel an obligation to do it, which is why you, why you stay after this and work through the thick and thin of it. And you've watched our stock, you've seen our stock price, you've looked at the charts, you know that this sucks at times. And you can see in the people at my team, I, we have some of the very best people in the world that come and work with me. They're so good. It's ridiculous. But we all are bonded together that we're trying to solve something bigger than ourselves. And that matters. And we think we know how to do it. And it isn't about get rich quick. It's about changing things, change, making this world a better place. That's what this is all about. And we think we have ways to go about that. So you mentioned blue collar a few minutes ago. You also mentioned it before we started recording from a blue collar background, now CEO of a public company. What are some of the feelings you have regarding that? You know, there's a, um, it's over the history of my career, you know, I got to be pretty well known back when I was doing the PLA stuff and I was at Cargill. It got to be the place where people would see me on TV enough or, you know, go to Japan and people even recognize me because I've been in the newspaper enough. And it gets to be like, it goes to your head a little bit and you get warped. And that was part of the reason I wanted to do something different. It's just, I wanted to be pat CEO, not, not guy who did the greatest, latest and coolest plastic, you know, and, um, it goes to your head a little bit. And then you, then you start, you got to get back to your roots and the roots are, no, let's solve problems. And so you had to go through that reconciliation of that, you know, of what am I going to be when I grow up? And it's like, I want to change. I want a replace. I want realistic economic solutions to make renewable carbon into jet fuel and gasoline and diesel fuel. And it can be done at large scale. That's the focus. And it's this, um, 
there's only a few ways it can be done. Literally, I'm not joking, a few ways. There's only a few possibilities that can be done economically. And uh, it's a, we have to persuade so many people and fight, educate so many people about, we have to teach Enviros about agriculture. We have to teach, we have to teach the people who are customers of Delta Airlines about agriculture because what they've been told is wrong. We can we bring them out to the fields and have them get in the tractors and see how it's done. And they're shocked because it's not what they were told. So we're, we find ourselves doing that. We find ourselves setting up and working with, you know, Argonne National Labs and how to count carbon and helping them, letting our stuff be out in the open and publish it. Who does that? We're letting them publish our data early. Maybe you can figure out the engineering data from that. So we just, we're trying to change things. And it's this, and we can see how to make money for ourselves, our shareholders, everyone who we touch. We can see how everybody can win. But it's not by being overly greedy in any one place, you know? So staying on that theme of changing, let's fast forward to 2035. You have your mission mapped out in front of you. If Fortune, Fast Company, Wall Street Journal, pick your publication, were to write a headline or even a short paragraph regarding Jivo, what does that read? Well, it's going to be that Jivo is a, you know, a multi-billion dollar company by then. And we are people who are experts in uh, business system, carbon accounting, and change agents is how what it looks like. And yes, there's production assets that we've invested in along the way. And we've lowered the carbon footprint of food, fuels, plastics. It'd be something along those lines. And uh, that's what I think we look like. And it, it will be that um, the dominant product products in the world will be done with systems that are like ours. You know, so in other words, the renewable resource-based products that get market share, the fuels, plastics, will be done out of, a, of something that we spawned. I love that vision, Pat. And last question, and I feel like you probably have some great answers for this. This could be professional or personal but if you could give some advice, words of wisdom or recommendations to the audience, what would it be? Well, there's a couple of them. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a couple thoughts in this line, and they both cut across personal and professional. But one of them is, is like, what are the facts, not the narratives? What's real and what isn't? It's harder and harder to sort that out. Um, and it isn't just about being self-serving. So... Whenever you find yourself where you go, this makes me feel good, you got to ask yourself, why does it make me feel good? And this is true. And this is for scientists too, or engineers or anybody. Just because someone says, ooh, I like that, doesn't mean you should pursue that narrative. What are the facts? What's good for a bunch of, what is it that people don't see across? And how can you connect people together and make them work, get them incentivized to work together? How do you solve their problems? How do you solve, and this is thinking in a value chain, the people downstream and the people upstream. How do you solve their problems concurrently and get them incentivized to work together? So I think the future world is going to be a lot more systems oriented than what we saw in the past, where it was just simply, I'm going to make stuff, sell it, and make a lot of money. Nah, that's not how the future world works. Not if we're going to be accountable for our sustainable footprints and all the rest. You can't do it that way. And so when you're, when you're, if you're a young person or anyone else doing a business, start thinking about your business system, your business system partners and collaborations and sharing value. And that's a different, that gives you different solutions than the classic, I'm just a, you know, a marauding capitalist. I'm going to put all the money in my pocket and screw everybody else. Yeah, that ain't going to work in the future. That's not what future world looks like. 
that's not can, what it is. You can shear a sheep a hundred times. You can only kill it once. That's it. That's the idea. And that's what future world looks like to me. And it is about paying it. To, like one of the ones, meat. We didn't talk about meat, but it's like this idea. Cows pollute. Yeah, okay. They make methane. So everyone, you know, people who understand anything about a cow knows that they have, you know, their inner, they have uh, multiple stomachs. They do anaerobic digestion. You feed a carbohydrate into an anaerobic digestion, digester, you get methane. You know how you solve that problem? Don't feed them the damn carbohydrates. Oh, where do the carbohydrates come from? Oh, we'll just feed them simple sugars from corn. Well, that's stupid. How about we take the carbohydrates out? Well, guess what? They don't burp so much. They don't get acid stomach then. They are healthier cattle. It's not that hard, people. This isn't about cows naturally pollute. That's not the true. That stuff's not true. It's about how we manage that system that causes whether or not they pollute. And this is the fundamental lesson throughout. These are systems we're talking about. It's about fundamentals, about what causes what problem and how can we address it collaboratively and solve things. Pat, I think that's a perfect place to leave off thinking systems. I really appreciate your time today and I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Anytime. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website nexuspmg.com and while you're there you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech green tech sectors bigger than us is a nexus pmg production